Welcome to this episode of Safe Home Podcast for struggling teens and their families finding their healing path. I'm Beth Syverson, a mom of an 18-year-old son who's been dealing with addiction and mental health issues for several years. I'm walking beside him as he struggles with his recovery while I work on my own personal growth and healing. I'm going to insert a little content warning here in case anyone has sensitive ears that might be listening. In this episode, we will be talking about sexual abuse and eating disorders. Today's guest is Sue Bowles, an Ohio-based master certified life coach, memoirist, and public speaker focusing on the topics of disordered eating, anxiety, depression, and sexual assault survival and recovery. Her company is called My Step Ahead, whose motto is, you only have to be a step ahead to help the person behind you. And that is certainly how we operate around here too. So I appreciate that motto. Welcome to Safe Home, Sue. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this, Beth. Yeah, glad to have you. You know, we're on like episode 50 something, maybe by this time that this is on. And I haven't talked to anyone yet about eating disorders at all. I think it's an important topic and one I think I need to make sure and address for our parents and teens. Mm -hmm. So let's hear about your childhood first. Did you grow up in Ohio? What was your childhood like? I am born and raised in Ohio. I've been out of the state oh, for about three years in terms of doing graduate work and then working, at, working after, after I graduated. And then I came back to Ohio. And it's funny because when I was in high school and college, I swore I was never coming back to Ohio because it was too <laughs> industrial because you can get from one end to the other of the state in four hours. And here I have been almost my entire life now. So never okay. say never. Never say no. I know. Be careful about that. Where did you end up going for school? I did my undergraduate at Defiance College in Northwest Ohio, and I did my master's at Mankato State University in Mankato, Minnesota. No kidding. Yeah, what? Guess where I was born? Mankato, Minnesota. Oh, hello. That is so cool. <laughs> I was just there two weeks ago for my grandmother's funeral. Oh. Yeah, a lot of my family still lives there, and I know Mankato well. Yeah, very good. We have that in common. Very good. Yeah, that was that was a good, was a good two years. That was fun. Yeah, good. My claim to fame is walking back to my apartment in sixty below wind chill. So when Ohio says it's cold, I'm telling them it's just just chilly. <laughs> oh, Minnesota has got everyone beat. I think maybe yeah. Canada is worse, but yeah. Minnesota winters are brutal. They, they they are not for the faint of heart. No. I grew up in Iowa, which everyone always mixes up with Ohio because mm -hmm. of all the vowels, I guess. Right. But yeah, Iowa was really cold, but not as bad as Minnesota. <laughs> Those people are hardy. <laughs> so did you have a good childhood? Did you have a supportive family and everything? How was your growing up years? Early on, it was great. You know, a lot, a lot of family fun, you know, playing with mom and dad in the house and everything. As we got older, my dad took a vice president position at a company. And my dad is brilliant. He's literally three points below genius. He's got patents under his name and the whole deal. So wow. he took, yeah, he took a vice president of, of a company position. And just the pressure of that started getting to him over time, the pressure mm -hmm. to be, to feel as if he had to be somebody that was totally against how he was raised. During the depression, my dad spent a number of years in the orphanage because his mom couldn't afford to raise him. Oh, so no, you know, no th that's a whole oh, different wow. that's a whole different vibe as compared to vice president having to look good. So anyway, over over mm -hmm. the course of that, alcoholism took root. So as mm -hmm. that started, some dysfunction started coming into the family as we as we got older. After thirty four years of marriage, mom and dad divorced. So oh. younger, it was great. As we got into mm -hmm. high school and on, this started getting a little rockier. Uh, but you know, a lot of great memories, and and it's really important for me to say first of all, my dad's been 
I think he's 31 plus years sober now. Oh, wow. Congratulations. And relationships are better than they've ever been. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic to watch healing happen. So I'm a benefactor of that. And yeah, I couldn't be more proud of my dad. He's my biggest cheerleader. So, oh, that's yeah. so great. Yeah, healing does happen. And mm-hmm. sometimes when I talk to people on the podcast or I talk about my own childhood, no one is trying to beat anyone up mm-hmm. or blame anybody. Right. Just some people are handed a little pile of stuff to deal with. And um, mm-hmm. so if we talk about our families, it's nothing denigrating at all no. or anything just to help other people know they're not alone and mm-hmm. people can overcome all sorts of things. Right. So right. very good. And I understand you had to overcome sexual assault. That sounds yeah. horrible. And how old were you when that happened? Yeah, that whole thing started when I was seven, believe it or not. I was in first grade and a classmate enticed me into mm-hmm. the woods one day after school. And held me against my will for 45 minutes. And his last words to me were a prison sentence. And I didn't realize it then. He went out one side of the woods. I went out the other when mom was calling me. And his last words were, don't tell anybody. And I, I didn't. I didn't know what happened. But my emotions became frozen in time that day. And that mm. phrase is real important for a little later when we get to talking about eating disorders, because that's really where the seed got planted. Yeah. The thing is, it became a 15-year secret. I didn't tell anyone to my senior year of college. Now, there was some other yeah. sexual abuse from some neighborhood kids. You know, stuff happened on dates in high school that probably didn't need to happen and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But all along, I never told anybody. I had put on the mask that I was okay. I covered it up. I I did. Sue was the strong one. Sue was the perfect child. You know, Mm -hmm. Sue was golden. You know, she didn't have any problems. And and I was dying on the inside. I was dying. And what is sad is that this is early 70s. Rape was not on the radar. Rape was Mm -hmm. not talked about. No one knew to ask because it wasn't even an issue. So my heartbreak And not everybody gets to this point, and I understand that. And it took a while until I got to this point. But my heartbreak also goes for Bobby, the boy who raped me. Because if it wasn't on the radar for me, what was he exposed to and possibly enduring that he would act out in that way? I was going to say a first grader that is able to rape someone, that, oof, that little boy was very troubled, I'm going to guess. Yeah, yeah. That's really, really yeah. sad, more sad for you, but also sad for him right. and whatever was going on with that. Yeah. Oh, did that kid follow you through school then? or No, I changed schools after first grade. Mom and dad had us, had us go to a private school. So I went to a oh, Catholic lucky. school. So, so I was going to a Catholic school after that. So, Okay, good. So you didn't have to grow up with him. No, no. Oh, gosh. Well, that's really terrible and so sad. And you know, even today, women are kind of told, just don't say anything, just go along with the program. Mm-hmm. You know, these women are coming forward and they're getting beat up for it, or no one pays attention or listens or believes them. And we keep getting these messages. Don't even bother telling anyone or just don't tell anyone. It's, right. it's very destructive. So I'm glad you're coming out to tell us yeah. why it's so important to tell people when really bad stuff happens to you. It's really important to know. And then did you... Because of that or because of just adolescence in general, did you act out in any way during adolescence? I don't know that I did. I mean, I, I may have when I was in when I was in high school, I, I started acting out. 
that's where my insecurity really started coming out. So I wanted to be seen. So I was involved in a lot of things. I had anger issues. I worked at a fast food restaurant. And if I got angry, I would go in the walk-in and I would take my fist and I would punch a box. Oh my gosh. And in high school, I punched a locker. So, I mean, I was not healthy. Yeah. You had this pent up anger. I did. I didn't know where it was coming from. So I was, I will use the word troubled and emotionally. Yes. And I suppose you probably didn't even realize that maybe that earlier trauma when you were seven had anything to do with it or anything else, but maybe were you not kind of allowed to be angry at home? I know my family, we just didn't do anger. I don't know that we really had a lot of anger at the house. So I think we, if people were angry, I don't know that we really brought it out a whole lot. Mm -hmm. For me, again, I, because I painted the picture that Sue had no problems, I wouldn't let myself be angry. Mm -hmm. You know, the situation from first grade, to me, I didn't even remember it. You probably buried it so deep. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. It was buried really deep. I didn't remember it. So I, I wasn't able to say, this is what's causing this. That wouldn't come for a couple of decades after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of therapy later, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. And then you are a speaker and um, advocate for mm -hmm. talking about eating disorders when did that crop up for you? My eating disorder started in high school when I started eating alone and got uncomfortable, but it really took root in college. College is a hotbed of stress. Oh, yeah. And so I came in, to use my phrase, already troubled, already in some ways unstable. Mm -hmm. And I mean by that, I was very insecure within myself. So mm -hmm. I, there was a lot of insecurity going on. So it really kicked in into college. And really what I remember most specifically was that even though I was involved in so much in college, and I mean over involved in college, mm -hmm. I would still end up eating alone in the cafeteria most of the time. And at some point in time, I just started getting paranoid that everybody was looking at me. And where it came in was that I may have enjoyed another serving of food, which is how our bodies are designed. That is a natural need yeah. and nothing to be suppressed. And instead, because I had painted the picture for myself and others that I was okay and had no needs, then my mind interpreted it that if I went up to get more food, everyone, in quotes, would know that Sue had a need. And suddenly Sue would be found out. And God forbid Sue be found out that Sue has some issues. So instead, right, I would right. dump my tray, get out of Dodge, and go snack later. And I learned to curb my hunger. And that's where the eating disorder started. Oh, okay. So did you end up with anorexia or bulimia or something else? Something else. And, and that's a great question because I think people think that there are only three eating disorders, anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating. And that is wrong. I think there's like 12 or 15 different types of eating disorders. Really? Yeah. Now, five of them are in the DSM, which medical professionals recognize. But there are a number of other ones that mental health professionals also recognize. So the, the, the eating disorder I'm in recovery from is called OSFED. It's an acronym that stands for Other Specified Feeding and Eating Disorder. What that means is that I do not meet all the diagnostic criteria for anorexia, bulimia, or any of the other eating disorders, yet I have disordered eating. Okay. So it's kind of a catch-all. But it means that I have a poor relationship with food that needs to get straightened out because I'm doing my body harm. Yeah. Okay. So it looked like eating in private, snacking all the time, that kind of thing. Was it kind of bingy or no? It wasn't bingy. Not at all. Never binging. Okay. There was no purging. I was underweight, but I had a lot of the signs and symptoms of quote unquote 
anorexic tendencies or quote, odd eating behaviors, but I never called it what okay. it was. So my eating behavior seemed to appear like it was anorexia. OSFED, sometimes people also call it atypical anorexia. So that's more oh. what I had. I had a lot of the symptoms and the signs of anorexia, but I didn't meet all the diagnostic criteria to say I was anorexic. Oh, okay. I see. So a lot of restricting and you were thinking everyone was watching you eat mm -hmm. and paying attention to what you were eating, which probably no one really does. They just are paying attention to what they eat. <laughs> yeah. A lot of it for me was was feeling uncomfortable in front of people eating and just feeling is anxiety that I'm on display here. I need to get out of here, that kind of thing. And again, I, I was not eating a full meal and I certainly was not eating properly. So I went for the carbs because they curbed my hunger. And then I started lying about what I was eating. So all the classic signs I had, you know, and, and kind of yeah. you know, taking smaller portions or whatever, and, and just that kind of thing. I was hungry. I would not allow myself to eat as much as I should have. How, so this all really reared its head in college mostly. What effects did that have on you physically or mentally? A lot in both ways. Uh, physically, mm. you know, like I said, I was underweight, which then meant that my body was not as healthy as it could have been. And I will get on a soapbox here for a quick minute. And I will say that eating disorders are not a diet gone bad. They are not about vanity. They are not about anything like that. They are about control and they are usually because there's some kind of unresolved underlying issue. It's just how it comes out. Eating disorders are an addiction, just like drug addiction, just like alcohol addiction or anything else. Yeah. The difference yeah. though, is that in every other addiction, pornography, drugs, alcohol, whatever, every other addiction to recover, you abstain, you avoid, yeah. you don't go back to it. You cannot do that with an eating disorder because you will die. Yeah, you have to eat. So yeah. recovery for an eating disorder means you have to face it head on and you have to plow yeah. through it. Now, that is easy to say and insanely hard to do. Yeah. They are very complex. They take a team approach. It cannot be done on their own. And I have a counselor and I have a dietitian. At one point in time, my counselor wanted me to go to a psychiatrist and see if there was something other biologically based because eating disorders are biologically based that perhaps some medication could help mm -hmm. balance out as well. Mm -hmm. So all of that to say, in answer to your question, physically, my body was not strong. So because mm -hmm. I wasn't feeding it, my muscles were not as strong as they needed to be, which then meant wear and tear on my joints. Oh, I have osteopenia in my hip. Now that can be reversed and is getting better. But because I was not giving my body the nutrients it needed, it started sucking them out of my bones. Wow. So that's one way. At one point in time, I had mitral valve prolapse, which is very common in people with anorexia. Oh. Now that because I am wow. recovered and I'm back to a stable, good, healthy body weight, what we call my set weight, because I'm at my set weight, then that has resolved itself. But that is a very common symptom and physical result of people with an eating disorder. Because again, you aren't giving your body what it needs. I was not able to process things emotionally correct. When I said I got paranoid in the cafeteria, it's because I was starving my brain. Because carbs oh. are the only thing that give your brain energy. Fats are the only thing that give you the sensation of being full, 
and protect your vital organs. And protein is the only thing that will rebuild your strength and your muscle mass. So the body is designed to need all three of them. So that's when I say diet culture is a lie because every diet is built on restriction and we are starving our bodies for what it is designed to need. And we are harming ourselves. And when instead a properly balanced meal plan diet consistently will stabilize your metabolism. Now, some of that, even though we talk about relationship with food, part of that also is our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with our body. I've used the phrase set weight. Set weight is is in genetics where it's what your body needs to be at for your body to function optimally so it does Mm -hmm. for you what you are asking it to do. Mm -hmm. And it's all within your body makeup. So if you had told me five, six, seven years ago that my body set weight would be what it is now, I would have left the room and it would have scared the daylights out of me. It was too high for what you had thought? I could not even conceive it. And now I don't think about it. It's not an issue for me. I have no Mm -hmm. scales in my house. Uh I don't want scales in my house. Now, what do you think about BMI? I I know there's a lot of controversy around BMI or body Mm -hmm. mass index. It's a lie. Yeah. BMI is not an indicator of health because BMI does not take into consideration muscle mass. Muscle mass Mm -hmm. is more dense and takes up less space. But if it's more dense, it means you're going to have some weight to you. But the Mm -hmm. stupid chart, all it thinks is, oh, you're overweight because you're at this. Whereas how Mm -hmm. do you know how much of of that body mass is muscle mass? Yeah. Let me put it this way. If a bodybuilder stepped on a scale, okay, and we look at them and they are at the peak of physically fit. So that's because they have weight from their muscles. They don't have a lot of body fat, most likely, but they step on a scale. All this chart is seeing is your height and your weight, and therefore you are. Yeah. You're going to tell me that? Yeah, that's ridiculous. You're going to tell me an Olympic bodybuilder is overweight? I mean, does it make sense? So unfortunately... The medical community does not, they don't fully buy into that, or at least the insurance yeah. companies, because they're still wanting to know. I just had a conversation with my doctor last week. I have a surgery coming up. I had to go in for my pre-certification stuff. And I told her, I said, I want the BMI taken out of my chart. And you know, she couldn't take it out from previous visits, you know, from previous years and everything. And she kind of talked, she said, is this for you or somebody else? Is this for me? I said, it doesn't need to be there. Uh-huh. And she even said, as we talked, and I just explained everything I just said to you, I said, it's not a good indicator of health. My doctor even said, no, it's not. Okay. So I am a staunch opponent to BMI being a measure of health because it's not. Yeah. People get put in boxes because of that stupid BMI number two. And it's, uh, yeah, they may not be healthy, but they have a healthy BMI, quote unquote, or they Mm -hmm. may be healthy, but with a, an odd BMI that doesn't fit their little chart. Oh, when I was active in my disorder. That BMI chart said I was just fine. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't measure so many different nope. things. So, and I was not fine at all. So, what triggered you to get help for your eating disorder? Was there like an event that happened that you're yeah. like, oh crap, I need help with this? Yeah. 2005, a dear friend of mine passed away after a battle with stage four breast cancer. Oh, I'm sorry. Three years later, I was grieving her as if it was yesterday. And I'd gone through mm. a period where 
I was fine. Eating was fine. Everything was good to go, as far as I know it was. And then my red flags started coming up. For me, one of my red flags is when I go to the refrigerator, I look in, and I'm simply overwhelmed with choices, and I shut the door, and I snack instead. That was starting up again. So because I had gone a few years without any issues, I reached out to my pastor, who, as a result of his wife passing away, two of his kids developed eating disorders. So he had a referral for me. And um, oh. Amanda has been absolutely fantastic. I've been with her over 14 years now, and, and she is okay. just fantastic. So, but when it got to that point, I was like, I just, I'm not doing this again. So when I started with her, I went in, I gave her, you know, the history, the background, and all other stuff. And before everything really started coming out, as we started talking, I said, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it all the way because I am not going back to this again. I'm not going back to start. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to keep going around the circle and not having an exit ramp. Yeah. I said, so if we're going to do this, we're going to do it all. And I have had to remind myself of that a few times when things get hard. Yeah. You know, she knows that is my character. So she reminds me of that once <laughs> in a while in a gentle way. But, and she simply says, I know you want to be thorough, Sue. I said, yeah, I do. You know, so because <laughs> I deserve it. That's just it. I deserve yeah. it. I, I yeah. mistreated my body and my emotions for way too long. And I'm yeah. done with it. I deserve yeah. to be healthy. And so does every other person hearing this. Absolutely. What advice would you give to a parent who finds out their teen is doing something quirky with food? They're not sure if it's an eating disorder, but it's not typical eating behavior. What what suggestions would you have for them? Well, being aware of it, first of all, is huge. So congratulations. And I applaud you for that, especially in the teenage years, preteen and teenage years. I was a youth leader, so I understand how rocky those relationships with kids can get. I know that as an added challenge to things. And I had a friend ask me years ago when he had his first child in B-teen, you know, we were talking and he was afraid of the relationship. I said, just, just chase them. Don't let them hide. Give them space, but don't let them hide. And, and just you know, seek them out. You let them know that you are available. So you know, I think a lot of it comes down to starting to build that foundation. That starts really young. But if perhaps yeah, something yeah, has happened funny. where you haven't had to build that foundation, it's not too late. It just takes a different mm-hmm. strategy now. So one suggestion I would make, yes, teens like to isolate in their rooms. I understand that. They mm-hmm. like to be on their phones and their devices and totally shut off everybody. Certainly respect that, yet draw some boundaries with that. Because your family Mm -hmm. still has an expectation to be a family, and you Mm -hmm. love your child by holding them to that commitment and that privilege to be part of that family. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean they can't have their time, but it also means, okay, we are going to still eat dinner as a family at the table, and no one brings their devices. Yeah. And if we have a family game night, then no one brings their devices. You know, those kind of things, those yeah. boundaries like that. Yeah. I think, and I say all that because that foundation, when it comes to the point where you are concerned about eating behavior, that foundation you are laying now for your relationship goes a long way. If all you have mm-hmm. is animosity in your relationship, then as sad as it is, you may not be the right person to speak that concern Mm -hmm. to your child. I just presented at a national conference two weeks ago about eating disorders. And that's one of the things we talked about was when it comes time to confront someone, yes, be aware of it, 
and have humility to it, not come off, oh, you, uh, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But part of that humility is discerning, am I the right person to approach this? Mm-hmm. Because if that mm-hmm. trust is not there, they're not going to listen to you. Because in essence, you are doing a mini intervention. Now, the words mm-hmm. we use also are insanely critical. If I look at you, Beth, say, Beth, you have an eating sword, don't you? Beth, you're looking really thin. Beth, you know, you're really acting weird. What's your response? Your, your defenses oh, go defensive. up. Yeah. You're not yeah, going to yeah. listen to anything else. Nope. But instead, if you are the right person to speak into somebody's life, and again, I, I, that's my foundational point, because you are going to, that person is going to hear some hard truths and hard concern, and they may not respond really well. But you want to make sure that it's going to be someone that they trust and will let and will let in that already has that that relationship foundation of being able to share the hard stuff because it's been reciprocal. They share hard stuff with you. You share hard stuff with them. Mm -hmm. That may very well be a parent child relationship. It may also not be the case when you get to the point of I don't like using the word confront, but but bringing to the attention your concerns. Mm-hmm. If you are not the right person to have the conversation and you haven't has a conversation, think of the people who are involved in that person's life. Is there a coach that they see? Is there another teammate? Mm-hmm. Is there a teacher? Maybe a high school counselor. Maybe it is their doctor. Maybe it's a different parent, however it works. Mm-hmm. Maybe get a group of people together and kind of compare notes. What have you noticed? I've noticed some things. What are you mm-hmm. noticing? Because people see mm-hmm. the person in different avenues. And they Mm -hmm. may see different things. But when you come together, you get a better picture. And then if Mm -hmm. there is a, I don't want to say consensus, but if there's, if there is, is an understanding that, yeah, okay, we, you know, we are starting to see there's something that needs to at least be said, Mm -hmm. then figure Mm -hmm. out who the best person is that that individual is going to listen to. Okay. And then when you finally get to that point, what you and I just talked about a minute ago, the words you use are critical. As soon as you start off with you, the walls go up and they're mm-hmm. not going to hear anything else. Focus yep. on observable behavior. Mm. Beth, I've noticed that after we eat, you tend to isolate. You tend to go to your room mm. or you go to the bathroom as soon as we're done. That concerns me. One of the worst things you can say is, Beth, you look thin. And I say that, or, or oh, Beth, yeah. you look like you're losing weight. And the reason I say that, or Beth, you look like you're gaining weight. Because if someone is in an eating disorder, if you focus on the appearance, that is validating their behavior, ah. the exact opposite of what you want. If you express it from an angle of observable behavior and I'm concerned for you, I've noticed this and I'm mm-hmm. concerned. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that person's mm-hmm. going to change their behavior or admit to anything. You may just be planting seeds. Yeah, might be a while. But the fact that you have noticed and expressed that concern and love and ongoing support will remain in their mind no matter how long it takes. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I think that people with disordered eating sometimes think that other people are paying very close attention to how they look Mm -hmm. and what they're eating. So if you say you're looking thin or you're looking like you've gained weight, that just see everybody's looking at how I'm looking and that makes you feel very self-conscious. It validates the behavior. It validates the negative thoughts. But if you, if you simply approach it from, I'm concerned, you're coming to them mm-hmm. with a concern. You're not accusing yeah. them. 
You're focusing on, on behavior that you have observed. That's uh-huh. all you're doing. So behavior, not appearance. Yes. Focus on the behavior, not the yes. appearance. Yeah. Observed behavior, uh, not what somebody else says. I see. So I've noticed you go to the bathroom for a long time, or mm-hmm. I've noticed that you are up a lot in the middle of the night eating or whatever people do with food. Yeah. Or hey, I've, you know, I've noticed when you take the trash out, there's a lot of candy wrappers or, or a, lot, a lot of chip bags, uh, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. Yeah. Or I've noticed when we go out to eat, it doesn't seem you're interested in eating out, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. And the way you're saying that is very not accusatory, not inflammatory, like no freaking out necessary. Right. right. Just I'm noticing. And is there anything that you need? Yeah. I'm concerned for you. You know? Yeah. I'm concerned. You can ask them if, if there's anything they want to talk about. But usually if you mm-hmm. ask, use open-ended questions, which is anything mm-hmm. that does not involve a yes or a no. Yeah. You know, it starts maybe with how or what is a big one. Don't use the word why. Why puts up the defenses. Yeah. People often don't even know their why. Yeah. <laughs> or help me understand, you know, something ah, like help that. Help me understand. Yeah. That's a good one. I like that. Now, if your teenager admits to having a problem or realizes that there's an issue, what is what do most people do nowadays? Do they go to rehab for eating disorders? Well, is that a thing? There are about five or six different levels of treatment. What I would encourage you to do, first oh. of all, is find a counselor. And if at all possible, one who is versed or and or specializes in eating disorders. Specializes. And because yeah. I said earlier that treatment involves a treatment team. Okay. Now, because that counselor, especially if they are, are versed in, in eating disorders, are going to be able to do an assessment to be able to determine the best level of care. Okay. Now, that okay. may be, you know, I'm in outpatient therapy. Okay. There's outpatient. There is intensive mm-hmm. outpatient, which is... There may be treatment programs where you go for a good chunk of the day, but you still go home at night. There is Uh partial hospitalization. There is hospitalization. There is residential. So there are so many different Uh degrees basically determined by the depth of the disorder, okay, and how early it is caught. The earlier you catch it, you'll be able to help get it recorrected, you know, get it corrected sooner. Yeah, the longer it stays entrenched, the harder it is to get out of. Yeah. Right. But definitely seek out a counselor first who is versed on eating disorders and can do an, do an assessment. Okay. They need to be versed on eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Most likely that person will also at some point involve a dietitian. Now my counselor mm-hmm. wanted me to have a dietitian involved about three times before I finally relented. And I'm so glad that I finally quit fighting her because oh, okay. you have to relearn to eat. And that sounds mm-hmm. really crazy. But because all I've done is respond to my emotional side of it with, in my case, avoiding food, I'm not thinking right. So I need help to make sure that my body is getting the proper nutrients it needs. So Mm -hmm. the dietitian can focus on the physical and the eating side, Mm -hmm. while the counselor focus on the emotional things that are leading to this. Together, it's mm-hmm. very supportive. Very good. Now, if medication may be warranted, then yes, they may get a psychiatrist involved or your primary care or something like that. Mm-hmm. If there's some kind of biological imbalance as well, most eating disorders have what they call some kind of co- comorbid presentation, meaning that there's going mm-hmm. to be more than one diagnosis. Anxiety, depression, yeah. PTSD, any of those are very common. And especially yeah. if, if one of those is very active, then you want to be able to help get that biological part under control too. Yeah. So that, that counseling and the dietitian 
you can get the maximum benefit from them and you're not fighting against yourself. Yeah. The medication might just help someone be able to get to a ground zero where they can deal with their stuff. Right. If they're exactly. super anxious or super exactly. or struggling physically, right. if their body's so malnourished, they can't even function mm-hmm. physically. Maybe that right. needs to be handled yeah. first. Yeah. yeah. Now you're a, a life coach. Do you help a lot of people with eating disorders? It depends on where they are in recovery. And I say that because there is a line between coaching and counseling. And I am very hyper attentive yeah. to that. And I will not cross that line. And just briefly, counseling mm-hmm. helps you deal with stuff from the past to bring you to the present. Coaching deals with the present to help mm-hmm. you get to where you want to go for your future. So I am not licensed uh-huh. and qualified to deal with eating disorders. Now, someone can be in counseling uh-huh. and have coaching at the same time. If someone's in counseling for eating mm-hmm. disorders and they've got a dietitian and their, their eating disorder is either if they're under care and you know somewhat stable or whatever, and they want to talk about their stress management, and they want to talk about their time management or their boundaries and communication or their identity and all those different things. Maybe finding a new job in the midst of all this, anything like that, life oriented stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm all in. Let's go at it. I can help mm-hmm. you with that. But the eating disorder yeah. part of it yeah. is, and, and the trauma, if there's any emotion, whatever's the emotional stuff is left for the counselor and the nutrition parts left for the dietitian. So I could very well be part of that team yeah. that would then free up that counseling and that dietitian session to focus on what you need to focus on so that we can talk about, okay, so mm-hmm. you're, you're doing this with your dietitian and that's causing you stress and increasing your anxiety. So let's talk about that. How do you manage that? What are your tools? What about your time management? You know, mm-hmm. all those different things. So, yeah. That sounds good. I've had many kinds of therapy and also life coaching and I loved life coaching. It was so practical and it, <laughs> it's much quicker than therapy. You get results quicker, right. but both are necessary because I, I do think you got to dig into that dark blah, yeah. stuff that no one wants to deal yeah. with that childhood stuff and blah, the underlying whys. Because that stuff is also affecting your presence. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There might be something that you discover in counseling and suddenly you realize, oh, that's why I'm having this relationship conflict. I can help you with the relationship conflict. Yeah. That's fully in the scope of, of, of coaching. Yeah. That's not a problem. During COVID, I had a mother-daughter team who had a huge falling out. And I was working with them for about three months. And we did it all, over, all via Zoom. And they felt that they developed the tools. And they were able to continue seeing the healing, get it restored to what they wanted to do. So, yeah, we can do coaching for relationship stuff while you deal with the other stuff with the counselor. Because it really is all intertwined. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. It is. It's good to have a team. I, I love that idea and and just have everybody on board, the spiritual person, the coach, the therapist, the yeah. physical health care kind of piece of it, mental health care. It's all really important. It's not easy to get or afford in our culture, but, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. there's obstacles to getting in that kind of care people need. But do you know of resources that are available to everyone? Like, is there any sort of public resource for people that have eating disorders? Yes. Like a hotline or anything like that? Yeah. One of the best ones is nationaleatingdisorders.org. It's the website. It's called NEDA, N-E-D-A. They have a chat line available. They have a screening tool on their website that is available for anybody. There are a a large array of resources. That is one of the ones that has, it's got links to all kinds of other stuff. They will help you find practitioners and help in your area even. They've got, like I said, they've got chat line, they've got the screening tool, 
They've got links to all kinds of treatment facilities. So I definitely direct people that way. It's a good place to start. If there's something, you know, somebody wants to ask me, they can catch me at my website, SueBowls.com. I'm happy to help you find resources even in your area, or if there's others that might be national that you can loop into, I'm certainly happy to help you with that as well. Well, thank you so much. So I'll put those links on the notes in case you missed those. So just look at the show notes below the podcast and they can... Uh, call you up to coach them on oh, yeah. any of life's transitions or things mm-hmm. uh, needing Definitely. a little extra Definitely. help. That sounds great. Very good. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you about? My challenge when I speak is I come down to this. Dare to believe that you matter. Because when you dare to believe mm. that you matter, your motivation for everything changes. You're not doing it for anybody else. Hmm. You're not doing it because you have to do this to make a team. You're doing it for you. Mm. One of the biggest things, and it was hard with my counselor, because I said my emotions were frozen in time. So when I finally started, Mm -hmm. I was raped when I was seven years old. Over four decades after the fact, I finally started to deal with it. So if you can imagine, this is the event, and then you've got middle school, and you got high school, then you got college, then you've got career on top of that. There's a whole lot of layers there to get down to this bottom one. And I was unhealthy. I didn't know what a boundary was. That's what I coach on as well. I didn't know what a boundary was. I didn't know how to stand up for myself. I would let myself be manipulated. And when my counselor would say something, I would kind of shut it down and turn and said, I don't know. It just doesn't matter. You know, and I'd shut it down and she would look at me and say, what you're really saying, Sue, is you don't matter. And that pierced. And over time, it really struck. So when I say dare to believe that you matter, that's where that comes from, because it really is the core. Mm. We don't stand up for ourselves. Mm. We don't advocate for ourselves if we don't believe we matter. We don't seek the help that we want internally even when we don't know how to ask for it, mm-hmm. or maybe the help that we need and don't want to ask for or are afraid to ask for or don't know how to ask for because we don't believe we matter. Mm-hmm. So dare to believe that you matter. Uh, and if you'd like help with that, call yeah. me. Let's get started. I am a hope coach. I take that sliver of hope that you have in your life that maybe, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe something will get better, something could change. Because you haven't totally given up. Uh-huh. I take that sliver of hope and we cultivate that hope. And it, it, it's a process. It does not happen nice. overnight. But we cultivate that hope and we watch that blossom. And as that blossoms, mm-hmm. you're going to see so many things change. Things that you think right now are out of reach, that it's good enough for everybody else but you. I was there. That's why my business slogan is you only have to be a step ahead to help the person behind you because we all think we don't have it figured out and that we can't be of help until we get it figured out. And that too is a lie. Yeah. You have gone through things in your life that someone else is just going through now. And while you're still figuring out your stuff, you at least can take your experience of what you've gone through and help the person who's in the same boat you were in six months, a year ago however long ago it was. We saw this happen when my mom passed 20 months ago. Six months after the fact, a coworker tragically lost her father. So myself and somebody else went out to her house. There was a concern expressed for me asking, is that going to be too much? It's pretty early. 
And I said, I guess we're going to find out. Mm. And yes, there were tears from me and from okay. my coworker. But by the time we were there, about an hour, hour and a half, by the time we were winding down, my coworker was asking me questions because she was going to the funeral home that day. What will they do? How do we choose this? What about this? What about that? What will they do? You know, do we have to do this? What do I have to bring? I had only walked that road six months ago. You knew all those answers. And I was still head deep in grief. I did not have it figured out. I was trying to figure out where I just landed, but I had just walked that road and I could at least yeah. help her. You don't have to have yeah. it all figured yeah. out. And it is okay to not be okay, but dare to believe that you matter. Oh, that's beautiful. That's that's definitely our philosophy around here. You know, I'm no expert on anything except for our lived experience mm -hmm. of dealing with addiction right. and mental health with our son and with myself. Mm -hmm. And so we just turn it around and try to help other right. people. Yeah. And if we wait till everybody's perfect, no one will ever do anything. <laughs> if I had to wait till I had it figured out, I would not be doing this podcast. I would not be presenting and I would not be a life coach. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. We just go from where we're at and everybody helps each other grow a little bit more and it's all good. We're all on the path together, yep. walking beside each other. Because we form a human change for support. While I reach out for help to my counselor yeah, and she's helping me take my next step ahead, I can still reach out to the person behind me uh -huh. who's trying to take their next step and we form a human chain of support. That's beautiful. That's a great image. That's a great, great image. Well, thank you so much, Sue, for sharing your life and your story with us. You're doing great work with your coaching and your memoir. What's the title of your memoir? My book is called This Much I Know the Space Between. Ah. It's available on Amazon and Kindle. Came out in 2019. It won second place nonfiction. So it is an award-winning book. Nice. And it, it shares my story. It goes into much more detail about my story in the first half. The concept with the book is this much I know is my story. Uh -huh. That is the one thing nobody can take from any of us. And the space between yeah. talks about that healing journey, that, that time where you're trying to figure out what's it all worth. Why? Yeah. Trying to figure out that question, why? And it's the space yeah. between second half of the book talks about the healing journey God took me on to get where I am today. And my healing journey only started in 2014. It's only been eight years. But that is the power of healing. Yeah. And we'll continue healing until yep. we yep. die, I guess. Right. You just keep yep. keep working at things, yep. keep chipping away a little bit at a time. Well, you're doing great work. I hope people look you up and keep learning from what you're talking about. Please, everyone that's listening, please share this episode with anyone you know who might have someone dealing with an eating disorder or just wanting a new perspective on how to deal with life. I think Sue's very wise on these topics. So very good. And make sure and find Safe Home Podcast too on social media, find us on YouTube. And we are a Patreon member. So if you're interested in supporting our podcast at patreon.com slash safe home, you can donate five, 10 or $25 a month toward keeping this a commercial free podcast. I have a special announcement. We have two new Patreon members both of whom are past guests of ours. So I feel extra honored. Rebecca Autumn Sansom and Elsie Curry are now our Patreon members. Thank you both for joining. Welcome to our Patreon. And we are also looking for Apple Podcast reviews. So if you wouldn't mind taking a minute or two to hop over to Apple Podcasts, find Safe Home Podcast, and leave a five-star review so other people can find 
our episodes. That would be really helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening. And Sue and I want you all to stay stay safe. safe.